Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Monday, February 5th. I uh, hope you found a little peace and a little respite over the weekend. As I said, you know, uh, Saturday and Sunday were um, mostly pajama days for me. Though I will tell you, uh, Ray and I went to see the new play at North Light Theater. That's, you know, we've remember we gave away tickets to the Capitol Fools. That's the North Shore Center for the Performing Arts. In that same building is a is an actual uh, theater for live stage productions. And uh, it's North Light Theater. Eventually, you might have read uh, they're planning to build their own facility and move to Evanston. But until then, they are at this same venue in Skokie. And uh, Ray and I went to see their new production. It's on one of those 90-minute one-act plays. It's called Selling Kabul. And it is about an Afghani family. And one member of the family had been a translator for the U.S. military and... um the play revolves around the family's efforts to get him to safety. It is, um, it's not a s- super political play. I mean, it doesn't bash the Afghan government, or the, the, the Taliban maybe. Um, and it's not about bashing the United States. It's just a very human slice of life. Uh, kind of a little window into what it may have been or may be continues to be like for Afghans who are in trouble with the Taliban because they helped out the United States. And the situation there is, it's just, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful experience. And I think when you see something like that, it really... humanizes it really humanizes the experience you know whenever i have people on and um on the radio and they're here to talk about some new study or some new investigation one of the things that i always ask them to do is give us an anecdote not just this program accomplishes, you know, these goals. But here's like a family who we were able to help. This was the family situation before. And this is what we were able to do for these people. That brings it home in a way that just talking about the issues doesn't. Sometimes talking about just the issues almost feels theoretical, untethered to the real world when nothing could be further from the truth. And that's what this is. We all know what happened. We all know that there's been fallout. And it's just a little window into how what happened might have affected real people on the ground. Excellent. I can't recommend it highly enough. So, on news today, I'm sure you've heard by now, King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer. According to the Washington Post... King Charles wants to talk about his diagnosis. He has raised money.
for various cancer-related charities, particularly charities that support the people who support friends and family who are going through cancer. And good for him. You know, um, he's the king, so it, it seems a little odd to me that if he wants to tell people what kind of cancer he has, that he feels constrained, but apparently he does. And apparently these decisions have to be made by the whole bureaucracy that is behind the royal family, which traditionally um, doesn't talk about personal stuff. For instance, Kate Middleton is home from the hospital after her mysterious abdominal surgery, but that's all we know. I mean, we were, the public told the bare minimum. But whatever kind of cancer he has, I do hope he gets out in front of it. Because when you talk about it publicly, it helps. It helps the people who have the same cancer. It has the people helps the people suffering from other cancers, and it helps people who down the road might have that same diagnosis. You know, until you realize that there's sort of a cancer club, a cancer diagnosis can be very isolating. This cancer was discovered when he had his uh, prostate surgery, but there is no word that it is prostate cancer. I'm sure if they removed any tissue during that procedure, it's standard procedure to take any tissue that you remove from somebody and test it just in case there's something there that um, that it wasn't visible to the eye. But it is also possible that they saw other things when they were in there and um, we shall see. But my guess is if the king wants his diagnosis to be public in the very near future, it will be public. Whatever it is, he's apparently able to uh, do outpatient treatment. They went away over the weekend. They are back uh, as of this morning at um, his main residence in London, specifically so he can begin outpatient treatment, whatever that might be. Okay, there's our royal family roundup. Maybe more than you ever wanted to know. Last week, I was uh, talking about what I considered to be an incredible waste of time by the Chicago City Council, which was this whole resolution to support a ceasefire in Gaza. A resolution that um, Governor Pritzker said... A, was pretty meaningless, if you think of it in terms of having any actual effect, and B, even if it had been something that might have had some effect, might have made a statement, the fact that it barely passed, it passed on a 50-50 vote with Mayor Brandon Johnson breaking the tie, And the only reason it passed on a 50-50 vote is, as Shia Kapos reported in Illinois Playbook, Mayor Johnson told his top aides that if they couldn't get behind this resolution, he would appreciate if they would just walk out of the chambers and not be present for the vote. Two of his top aides did just that. Um, Two other alders 
were absent from the whole meeting, but it's unclear whether or not their absence had anything to do with the resolution. But the resolution would have gone down to defeat. But it took up how much time of a city council meeting? And now we have the reaction. We have the reaction. And it ain't good. Uh, An editorial in the Chicago Tribune titled A Hateful Travesty on the Floor of the City Council. Wednesday was a sad and avoidable day for Chicago and the city council. The spectacle on the council floor as Mayor Brandon Johnson had to break a 23-23 tie in favor of a resolution calling for an immediate unconditional ceasefire in the Gaza Strip was a model of how not to conduct the city's business. And in the Chicago Tribune, a full-page ad taken out by several of the leaders of Chicago's Jewish community. That ad said, in part, We are appalled at the way you, Mayor Johnson, in your capacity as chair of the city council, handled the Israel-Hamas ceasefire resolution and cast the tie-breaking vote. Not only does the resolution do nothing to substantially substantively affect the outcomes in the Middle East, but the proceedings around this resolution have fanned the flames of anti-Semitism at a time when Jews in Chicago are already facing unprecedented levels of hate. That um, full-page ad signed by well over uh, a dozen, almost... 20 Jewish Community Relations Council, Jewish United Fund, various temples around the city. I understand the desire to weigh in on something of such prominence in international politics. And any member of the Chicago City Council could have at any time held a press conference to give everyone their thoughts. They could have written an op-ed. And yes, I know the Trib tends to be a more conservative paper, But if there were an op-ed written by half a dozen alders, I think the Tribune, I'd like to think the Tribune would have published it. But instead, time that should have been spent on business of true importance to the city of Chicago was spent debating a resolution that had no power and in the end barely passed. And oh, by the way, the fallout has been more divisiveness in the city of Chicago. There was one Jewish member of the Chicago City Council, Deborah Silverstein, and to not create a resolution that she could sign on to was a serious misstep.
progressives are used to pushing the envelope, wanting to be cutting edge, and I get that. And there is value in that. There is also value in consensus. There is value in knowing that people of goodwill can approach an issue in different ways. I think sometimes progressives get so excited about their feelings and their ideas that they sometimes either don't care or don't spend any time thinking about the repercussions of what they say and do. And in the long run, I think that hurts the progressive cause. I really do. I'm not just saying this because um, I'm not super progressive. You know, we, I told you shortly after I started doing this show, somebody, uh, I don't know if they called me up or they sent a text and they said, well, you know, you're not a progressive, you're a liberal. Okay. Maybe I am more middle of the road than a lot of progressives. But I don't think that's a bad thing, and I don't think I should be reviled. And I think that it would be nice if people like me were included in resolutions, policies, programs. And if there's something that you want to do that initially people like me don't agree with, convince me. Don't just shove it down my throat. Convince me. We have a mayor who is one of the most motivating speakers that I've heard, especially in political life. You know, instead of just showing up and being a tie-breaking vote, speak to us, Brandon Johnson. Move us. Tell us why you want us to be more on board with a resolution like this. Convince us. Instead, what we've achieved as far as ripple effect is pretty much nothing. And the Jewish community feels that we have put them more at risk. That's not a good thing. Nobody wants that. Okie doke. I'm getting off of that soapbox, too. Uh, let's uh, take a break. We'll be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Oh, uh, by the way, endorsement season has begun. And no, I'm not talking about when po- politicians endorse one another. I'm talking about the groups that you follow, the groups you believe in. Uh, in uh, Shia Kapos, Illinois, playbook today, she has a link. Uh, New Trier Democrats are out with their endorsement list, and the Sierra Club is out with their endorsement list. A great way, particularly if you don't have the time to really do research into who's on the ballot and who you're going to vote for, 
a great way to determine this is who is somebody that you respect? Is there an organization like the Sierra Club who and you believe in their mission and you believe their um, the way they work, the way they um, handle themselves? You support that. Whatever that organization is today, it's the Sierra Club. They'll have recommendations. Planned Parenthood came out with their recommendations for people who are on the ballot in Illinois. State reps, state senators, Congress people. Who who do you admire? What organization do you admire? I guarantee that they will come out with a list of endorsed candidates. And that, my friends, can make your life very easy when you approach an election. So I will try to share with you from time to time as these lists come out. Like I say, I've been, I looked at Planned Parenthood's list, uh, Planned Parenthood of Illinois, that is. Uh, Sierra Club list is out. New Chair Democrats list is out. Those last two, if you go to Shia Kapos's uh, Illinois playbook this morning, you can find links. Just you click and boom, there it is. You can memorize it. You can print it out. You can put it on your desktop so you don't forget. Um, oh, and you might be curious to see what is going on with. Remember, when last we left our heroes on Capitol Hill, the Senate was putting together a package that um, would include funding for the border, funding for Israel, funding for Ukraine. And there's a line item for funding for the Indo-Pacific region, which is really funding for Taiwan. The Senate worked very hard in a bipartisan way. They even asked independent Kirsten Cinema to put her two cents in. And they came up with a bipartisan bill that they have um, a procedural vote for coming up this Wednesday the 7th. Um, Mike Johnson, who was one of the loudest voices yelling about how there would be no aid package for Israel, Taiwan, and Ukraine unless it was tied to border funding. Do you know where I'm going with this? Um, Mike Johnson... Um, is now backing away from this because Donald Trump has let it be known that he doesn't want it to pass because he doesn't want to give the appearance that Biden's had any kind of victory or done any real work fixing things at the border. So all of the Republicans who demanded that these two funding packages be tied together are now backing away from it. And, you know, Trump... You know, he may be a thug, but he's got street smarts. Trump is not going to name his vice presidential candidate because everybody is dancing to his tune. J.D. Vance was talking to George Stephanopoulos on ABC and said essentially that um, the president didn't have to follow any rulings by the Supreme Court. J.D. Vance, desperate to be Trump's VP. When this bill, this bipartisan bill that included border funding came out, Elise Stefanik, desperate to be 
Trump's VP said, oh, it's an absolute non-starter. Mike Johnson, who demanded that these things be put together, has now said that if this Senate bill comes to the House of Representatives, it will be dead on arrival. And they're claiming it's because they don't like the provisions in it. Don't believe that for a second. They are doing this because they have been instructed to do it by Donald Trump. And then some of them are even admitting that publicly. Uh, James Lankford, the Republican from Oklahoma who helped craft this in the Senate, he has been quite blunt about his feelings about how the Republicans demanded this. They got it. And now they're turning their back on it because Donald Trump said, don't vote on it. Don't vote on it. Don't give don't give uh, Joe Biden any kind of victory. Mike, Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, has made some noises about how he's going to put together a bill that just has funding for Israel. And that's what they're that's what he wants to bring to the floor. Because even funding for Ukraine is controversial. It's unbelievable. It is absolutely unbelievable. And this time, everybody can see the machinations. And I, I think the Republicans who are saying this is going to be very bad for them in 2024, people are going to remember this kind of nonsense, this kind of obstruction, and it is going to make them vote Democratic next time around. I think they're right. I think they are absolutely right. And it couldn't happen to a nicer group of folks. <sighs> Let's take a break. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Oh, yes. Time to take a cleansing breath and move along. <laughs> Joining us now is Kate Martell, who is the national political reporter at The Hill. We are uh, going to take a quick look at South Carolina with Kate. Kate, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm going to take that cleansing breath. <laughs> yes. Yes, I find I have to take those more and more often. And by the time the 2024 election comes around, this entire radio program is going to be three hours of me just breathing heavily into the microphone. <laughs> I feel like I haven't had a break since 2016. So someday it'll come. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I want to look at South Carolina. Um Trump obviously won in Iowa. Trump obviously won in New Hampshire. I read something very interesting today, though. Um, oh, I'm, I'm there's a, a pollster who generally works with Republicans who was writing about Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. And he said, now, remember, people don't drop out of the race for president because they've had a change of heart or they suddenly realize they can't win. They only drop out of the race basically when they run out of money. And right now it looks like Nikki Haley has enough money to keep her going at least through South Carolina and maybe even Super Tuesday. But as as you and I both know, Donald Trump really, you know, he's on a roll. He has momentum. He seems unstoppable. Give me all your thoughts on this. 
Yes, that is exactly it. And I'm so glad you, you started by pointing that out, Joan, that, you know, we talk about this presidential campaign as should they drop out? Do they have a chance? Is their candidacy viable? But it's all about money. Running these campaigns is a really expensive operation. And, you know, it comes from these donors that can hold them up and hold up these candidates that they have a chance to stay in the race. Um, like you said, you know, it, it matters um, how long that they can stay in the race. And particularly Nikki Haley does seem to have enough money that she can last through South Carolina. She's actually barnstorming the country over the next few weeks, holding a series of fundraisers, most notably in South Carolina, but also states such as California and New York and Florida. Those are very common spots when candidates are looking for a place to raise money. Um, that she does all fingers, all signs point to every Every that Nikki Haley wants to stay in this race until South Carolina. We expect her to do that. It's her home state. Um, while she did put all of her eggs in the New Hampshire basket, so to speak, South Carolina is a place where she thinks that her campaign can shine. Um, one of the major reasons is it's an open primary. So, um, you know, that means that it's not just open to to registered Republicans, but undeclared independent voters um, can come out and support Nikki Haley. And that's somewhere, you know, a base that I would argue is a really good spot for Nikki Haley that, you know, while a lot of Republicans prefer former President Trump, um, a lot of people that do not like Trump within the Republican Party or independents would prefer Haley. And I think that can help her. So all signs are pointing she will stay in until South Carolina. I would be surprised if she had a similar showing in South Carolina as she had to New Hampshire if she still sticks it out until Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday has so many states involved that becomes a really expensive operation that comes into ad buys. Um, you know, it's all about advertisements, which are insanely expensive. So I think she'll have a harder case to make after South Carolina if she doesn't have a better showing than she did in New Hampshire. But like you said, if she has this money to go on, she should certainly seems motivated and wants to stay in and be the anti-Trump candidate. It seems to me that the only reason to, uh, to donate money to Nikki Haley at this point is to antagonize and possibly um, weaken Donald Trump. Um, but if I were a billionaire looking at my checkbook and I, uh, I don't know if I would feel comfortable it seems like giving money to nikki haley is basically flushing money down the toilet it's not going to put her in the presidency unless trump drops dead um it is not going to she's not going to be his vice president and um what is it going to get me i think a lot of donors um, you know, I'd, I'd like to think some donors are just motivated by, you know, who do they admire and who's the best candidate. But I think a lot of donors also think in terms of, you know, what kind of legislation will this person be behind once they're in office? And will that help me? Will that hurt me? You know, you want a candidate who you sort of feel is going to be effective for you. And if you're backing a candidate who really has no tr chance of winning, why do you think that happens, Kate? Why would people be writing Nikki Haley checks at this point? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I agree with your assessment there that, um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting that so many people are still donating to Nikki Haley, particularly in the 24 and 48 hour marks after the New Hampshire primary. She got a huge number of new donors. Um, and I, I think 
mainly is to get under President Trump's skin. And, you know, like you said, when you're, you know, actually writing these checks that, you know, affect your bottom line, that you want to see action happen with these campaign contributions. And that's not necessarily going to motivate people to, you know, send off their own hard-earned money um, to go to somebody who likely won't have a political future. And I think it's worth noting, I've been talking to a few donors who, um, you know, were Chris Christie supporters because all they wanted to do was oppose President Trump. That was their M.O. And when he dropped out, we're debating, you know, do I want to look into supporting Haley? And some of the hesitancy is they were still concerned that Nikki Haley would turn around and, you know, endorse Trump later when she dropped out. I, I think a lot has changed in the past month, and I'm not sure I would still agree with that assessment that that might still be the case. They've seemed to have quite the falling out in the past few months. Um, but I, I think that when some of these donors are, you know, looking at an outlook of the race, they're unhappy with former President Trump. They're unhappy with President Biden. And I think that some of them are hoping that while Nikki Haley may not become the nominee, that some of this money later on can go into, you know, supporting causes where they could have, you know, a stronger uh, appeal. You know, this can go into down ballot races um, and it can go into other places. But I think at the, at the moment, donors are also hoping that to just give any momentum to Nikki Haley. This is the first time that we've made it into this presidential race where it was Trump versus one candidate. That is what Nikki Haley had been wanting. I think that's what most Republicans who do not want Trump to be president again were hoping would happen. That's why these debates were so ineffective over the past six months, because, you know, they were, you know, there was all these Trump alternatives on stage duking it out when Trump, the front runner, wasn't even there. Um, and now that the race has become, has actually come down to Haley versus Trump, I think that there's this part of the Republican Party that really doesn't want Trump to be president again and are hoping that they can now rally the support and are hoping that they can have this this final bit of momentum. Um, whether or not that happens, polling hasn't really pointed to that. But I think that this is kind of the last-ditch effort from Republicans and you know, moderate independents who aren't really don't want a rematch between Biden and Trump again and are hoping that they can, you know, pump a little bit of energy into Haley's campaign and maybe give her a little bit of a boost and are hoping that, you know, crossing their fingers and that something could happen at the last minute. I think that you're right. There's absolutely no love lost right now, especially, you know, Nikki, maybe one way or the other. But Donald Trump certainly is uh, no fan of Nikki Haley at this point in time. But my fear is that she will capitulate, not in a in a, oh, I was wrong. You know, he's the guy. But I think she can. And I think, sadly, she will endorse Trump. But her reasoning publicly will be. You know, I've fought hard. I'm not going to be the nominee, but I think that I'm still a Republican and I think nothing is worse than four more years of Joe Biden. So whatever it takes uh, to make sure that doesn't happen, you know, like that's what I'm going to do. Kind of like I'm not not like, yes, I'm I think Trump is the is the best candidate and that's why I'm falling into line. But it's sort of like I've seen Republicans do this when they're trying to have it both ways. Oh, it's not that I like Donald Trump, but I just think Biden's really bad. So no matter who it is, I'm voting Republican. Don't you think she could thread the needle that way? Yes, yes. I, I wouldn't be surprised if she did 
have, you know, an endorsement later of Trump if and when she drops out. Um, and what you're describing, you know, where these campaign speeches of Republicans, you know, later dropping out and saying that they want whoever that Republican nominee to be president reminds me of Nikki Haley on the campaign trail. I've been watching a lot of her campaign events, and I really see, saw her come into her to find her groove in the past few weeks before New Hampshire. Before that, she was running that campaign saying, I voted for Trump twice. I was a big Trump supporter, and now we want something new. She really wasn't looking to attack her former boss for most of her presidential campaign. And what's interesting is that the final days, I finally kind of saw her find her her groove and really start attacking Trump. And I saw it being effective. Um, she was campaigning with the, the governor of New Hampshire and, you know, who is, you know, a, a pretty big foe of Trump over the years. And, you know, it, it was interesting to see her, her find her groove. And even when she's going after Trump during these events, her, her major themes of her campaign speeches are we don't want four more years of Biden. She goes after Biden's age constantly. Um, that's which I think you can argue is one of the most effective campaign lines against the, the incumbent president. And she's, I think, wants to lean into the fact that, you know, while she does think that she's the better alternative, I absolutely expect that if and when she drops out, that she would probably support her former boss because of all the things that, um, you know, comparing what the criticisms that she's had of Trump versus Biden in her campaign speeches, you know, that seems like a natural place for her. Kate, you've said that in the last few weeks of following her campaign, you've seen her really sort of find herself, get her get her groove. What was one just give me one example of something she did or said that seemed a departure to you or it seemed like the new Nikki Haley to you? Yeah, beforehand, she used to praise Trump. And and then in the final few days, I noticed that she stopped completely praising him. And she started attacking, you know, his, his mental fitness. Those were a few attacks that I saw in the final days that really, really seemed to get under Trump's skin. I was at a Trump rally um, a few weeks ago where, you know, he was in a in a, an arena full of his most loyal, fired up supporters in 12 degree weather um, at an arena on a Saturday night in Manchester, New Hampshire, you know, as as happy of a crowd as he could get. And all he wanted to talk about was Nikki Haley because the comments she had been making were getting under his skin. Um, because you can really see that he was going, she was starting to go after certain comments that he had made. Um, you know, he had misspoke because he was talking about January 6th and the security around it and how Nikki Haley didn't do anything. And, you know, she really hurt our country that day. He met Nancy Pelosi. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, he kept getting attacked for these comments. Nikki Haley started noticing, and that's a perfect example of what I noticed from her in the final days. She started referring to that every single campaign speech that I saw, that I saw because that was working and that was getting under Trump's skin. And I can also compare it to when I was at Trump's election night watch party in New Hampshire, that he just won by a you know, resounding 11-point win in New Hampshire. And he came out and you would have thought he lost. He was angry. It was tense. All he was talking about was Nikki Haley and, you know, how bad she'd be for the country and how disloyal she was. And, you know, you, you wouldn't realize that she had actually worked for him and served in his administration. Um, but it, it's just fascinating that those little comments I saw really kind of 
dig away at Trump's morale, even at, you know, an arena with a lot of supporters where he can, you know, he'll get an applause line to anything he says. That's all he wanted to focus on. And at his election night watch party, surrounded by his family, some donors and, you know, also a group of loyal supporters that all he wanted to talk about was her, even though that she had lost by 11 points. I've read, obviously you were there, I wasn't, but I've read that a lot of Republicans were really upset by that and that it's possible that his coming out and making a quote-unquote victory speech that was just so angry that that actually helped her fundraising. Do you? What do you think of that? I've heard that exact thing that I've heard, you know, that she brought in an insane number, and I'm forget, blanking on the exact figure that she brought in from even small donors over the next few days, that it wasn't just a few bundlers that pulled a lot of money, but there was a lot of individual voters that donated money to her campaign following Tuesday night's loss for her, Trump's victory, because of how much it seemed to get under his skin. Um, that That's, I think, what's fascinating to me is how much that the two of them are motivating each other's campaigns. Um, you know, well, it doesn't seem to be a very close primary in any way. It feels that way, just if you were to listen to just the two speeches, because you, it does seem to be really getting under Trump's skin. And Nikki Haley, I think, is really profiting on that. And that is why she had pulled in crazy fundraising totals in the few days after the primary. Um, Ann Coulter, um, the <clears throat> very famously wrote a book praising Trump in his in his early ascendancy. And on uh, social media over the weekend, I saw that somebody had reposted the cover and had sort of direct messaged her like, you know, you've been really good at figuring out what Trump needs to do. You know, what do you think he should do at this moment in time? And she reposted Ann Coulter reposted the whole thing, the shot of her book cover where she's, you know, all in on Trump, this guy asking what should Trump do? And all she wrote was, well, he could die. Yikes. I know. Um, he That's has Ann lost. And Coulter, he could die. And there's a part of me that thinks that thinks that Nikki Haley is going to try to stay in this race as long as humanly possible on the off chance he has maybe not death, but a major medical event that takes him out. I mean, he's just a few years younger than Joe Biden. He's in terrible shape. He doesn't look very good. Um, I, I have to believe that part of her supporters are thinking if anything happens, we've got to keep her in the race so she'll be poised to step in. Um, we need to take a break, Kate. But if that happens, when we come back, if that happens, if let's say something and I, I can't imagine that there's any kind of conviction or indictment that would keep him out of the race. But let's say. You know, he had a major medical event and Nikki Haley became the nominee. How you think Democrats, particularly Joe Biden, would react? I'm talking to Kate Martell, who's the national political reporter at The Hill. We'll be back right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. 
I am very pleased uh, to be joined by Kate Martell, who's the national political reporter at The Hill. We are talking about Nikki Haley, Donald Trump. And uh, my question to Kate right before we went to the break is, let's say something was so bad it pulled Donald Trump out of the race. Again, I don't think another indictment, I don't think a conviction is going to do it. But, you know, if something happened, if he had uh, a stroke or or some very serious medical condition that that really forced him to withdraw Uh, Nikki Haley right now is perfectly positioned to become the nominee. How do you think the Biden camp would react? Because I, I as I've told listeners a few weeks ago, Biden said something that was a little bit cryptic, um, but it, it was along the lines of as long as the Republican nominee is going to be Donald Trump, I am the best person to defeat him. And a lot of people read that as saying, if it's somebody else, then maybe I would step aside. What do you think would happen? Yeah, I think if one of those scenarios you mentioned were to happen, that's not a great outcome for the Biden campaign, that Biden's approval ratings are fairly low. And, you know, his biggest critique is his age. Um, That is what, you know, a lot of voters, even Biden supporters, are concerned about. And I think their their nightmare scenario would be to run against Haley. You know, by running against Trump, yes, Biden's age is an issue, but Trump isn't that far away from his age that it, it kind of cancels it out. But to then be running against, you know, a Republican who's on the moderate side, you know, compared to a lot of the other Republicans that have been running and is a young, fresh face that I, I think that's an outcome that they would not want. Um, and, you know, if we were to play out how that would potentially look. So, you know, we've been talking about Trump as, you know, the very likely perspective nominee. But, you know, we're not calling him the presumptive nominee. And that's because presumptive co- talks just about delegates. And, you know, for a Republican nominee to become the nominee, they have to reach over 1,200 delegates. And at this point, Trump only has, you know, I, I think 32 delegates. So he is really, really far from getting to that number. So, you know, if something were to happen fairly early on, I wouldn't, you know, that that can argue for Nikki Haley as well positioned to continue in the race. If these things were to, if something, medical event or, you know, a felony charge conviction, you know, something that were to shake up the race. And that's what Nikki Haley is. One of the reasons that I think she's banking on staying in the race is hoping that one of these um, shakeups would potentially happen. And I think if that happens even closer to conventions, it would turn into an all out brawl. I think that, you know, there's all these state rules on how the delegates, um, you know, are allocated that if, if they have to go by the results of a primary, what happens if that candidate is no longer in the race, that it would cause an all out brawl, I think, at the conventions, um, <clears throat> that there would be a lot of unknowns that even though Nikki Haley is still in the race, That doesn't necessarily mean she would automatically become the nominee, that, you know, you Mm -hmm. could still have Republicans coalesce around somebody else, which I think is fascinating when you start to break down these dynamics. But as far as the Biden campaign is concerned, that she is, I think, a big threat to his, um, you know, his reelection. And some of the polling really has backed that up, that. You know, Trump versus Biden polling is pretty close. But Nikki Haley, I've in most events that I've seen her has talked about how if she were to run against Biden, that polling is showing that she would actually come out on top. And some of the polls have reflected that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, some of my when I talk about this, because I think that if for some reason um, Donald Trump was out of the race, I do believe um, I mean, I know anybody who's president has an ego, Kate, the size of which you and I probably can't even imagine. Um, but I do think I do think that that Biden would uh, would step aside. And some of my listeners have said, well, you know, um, it's getting close to Election Day. And after a certain point, you know, he wouldn't be able to step aside. And I'm thinking to myself, OK, well, it might make for a J.B. Pritzker or a Gavin Newsom or whoever jumps into the fray it would give them less time to campaign. But you can't make somebody run for president who doesn't want to run for president. And, you know, if it's a month before and Joe Biden says, nah, don't want to do it anymore. Trust me, there will be there will be an alternative. I, I don't think that is that is a, a viable argument. Um before I talk to you about what's going on with the Dems there, I want to go back to Trump for a minute. Um, vice presidential picks. I see. I'm seeing all these interviews on the morning shows, on the Sunday news shows, where it really it feels like Republicans are auditioning. Look how much I love you. Look how much I love you. I'm the, I love you better than anybody else. You know, J.D. Vance and George Stephanopoulos and J.D. Vance saying, oh, the president doesn't have to follow the Supreme Court. You know, the president has to do what the president thinks is right. And oh, my God, it is it is embarrassing. Um, who do you think right now is the strongest vice presidential candidate? In short, yes, that is absolutely the the vibe that I'm feeling, you know, watching these Republicans do interviews on, you know, <laughs> Sunday shows. And, um, you know, the person that comes to mind is Elise Stefanik, that um, she is a number four House Republican. She's younger. She's an upcoming, a rising star, upcoming rising star in the Republican Party. And she's really leaned into recently um, into, you know, a lot of Trump's rhetoric. She's been referring to um, January 6th hostages. That was a fairly controversial comment um, that echoed around Capitol Hill. She was fully leaning into that, that she's a, a person that really comes to mind. Um, Senator Tim Scott, who dropped out of the campaign, he had a well-timed endorsement of Trump. He is absolutely auditioning um, to be his VP. He appeared with him on stage at his victory party in New Hampshire. And he, you know, Nikki Haley actually put him in his post in, in by um, endorsing him in, um, in 2012, that it was kind of a slap in the face to turn around for him to then endorse um, Trump. Um, so I think he's somebody that, that really comes to mind. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, the Arkansas governor, she's also a name that comes to mind. She served as the press secretary for Trump and his administration. These are three people who I'm constantly seeing on the Sunday shows, making the rounds and, um, you know, are out in the campaign trail for Trump and are, are you know, making these appearances are very publicly supporting him. Those are three people that really come to mind for me. It could always you know, be somebody we don't expect. This is always a game that us political reporters love playing. Is who the <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but at least Stefanik, she's somebody that I have my eyes on. <laughs> wow. Kate Martell is a national political reporter at The Hill. Kate, I love talking to you. This has been a lot of fun. I hope you'll come back. This has been so fun. Thanks so much for having me, Joan. You're very welcome. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more after this.
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Spencer Critchley, we talk politics and the thinking behind what's going on in our political life. I always remind you that he wrote the book Patriots of Two Nations, why Trump was inevitable and what happens next. He has a podcast called Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good, um, focusing on conversations with people who are making the world a better place. But for those of you who listen and have listened to all of our conversations very closely, you will recall that Spencer is also a composer and a music producer and has very deep roots in the music business. And when I asked him to come on today, when we booked this, I didn't realize that we would be talking the day after the Grammys. Hello, Spencer. How are you? Hey there, Joan. How are you? Uh-oh. Here's my dog speaking his music. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so uh, did you watch the Grammys last night or have you read about it today? Yes, yes, I did. Um, we uh, are in uh, California, on the central coast of California, with a terrible storm. And so we had to uh, leave our house because we had no power, and we checked into a hotel, which is where I'm speaking with you from now. And that's why the dog is with me and why she barked when she heard somebody outside. Ah. Um, so, yeah, we did catch the Grammys, actually, at the hotel. And, uh, yeah, what a broadcast. Um and wow, a couple of really powerful moments. Amazing. Uh, what, was, what were a couple of your highlights? Yeah, Tracy Chapman with Luke Combs. Yeah. And what a what a powerful moment. What a powerful song and how good to see her again. And what a reminder of what a great song that is. It's like a really, really well-crafted short story. Yes. I think published that. Published the lyrics to that short story in the New York in, to, to that song in the New Yorker as a short story. <laughs> you know, and it, um, it's just a beautifully written song, and what a reminder, really, um, that you don't need to be bludgeoned to death by production value. Mm-hmm. It was they just sang the song and and sang it beautifully, the two of them. And I love Luke Combs's tribute to her about how he. It was his favorite song when he was a little kid and what a thrill it was. You could see it really was for him to grow up and meet a hero like that and perform with her on the Grammy stage. What a yeah. what a powerful moment. And, and not that, Joni Mitchell oh as my well. God. Sorry, I don't want to move but, on too fast from No, no. From uh, I just, one more thing about the Tracy Chapman thing. Um, I know that she has, you know, never stopped performing, but I'm so glad he did that cover because, as you know, you know, the music business is a business and that gave new life to her song. And I would imagine that there are some um, royalty checks coming in that are a little bit bigger mm-hmm. than they've been for a while. And who doesn't deserve it yeah. more? And on oh, that man. subject, and you know, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say. I seem to remember that when he covered that song, there were some complaints about appropriation or something. <laughs> this mm-hmm. white guy singing a black woman's song. And that displayed a certain um, lack of knowledge of how the music business works. Uh, the people yeah. who write songs, the people who write the songs, usually make out far better than everybody else, except for the people who run the companies, of course. 
but because they get royalties. And so for Luke Combs to cover her song was, I don't think she objected to it. Obviously, she didn't <laughs> by appearing with him last night, but financially, that would be a windfall for her. Absolutely. So, Ab- absolutely. Yeah. And some people I know objected because a lot of times when um, a younger artist covers a classic song, they change it. They change the tempo. They change the arrangement. They kind of make it their own. And he didn't. He did it just the way she did it, which is why their duet worked so perfectly. Oh, yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, I, and, I, and I just think, I, I, like you, I loved that little tape where they, where they set it up. And, you know, and it sounded like when he was doing his, the album this was on, that adding that song was almost like an afterthought. Like, well, we need another track. Yeah. Well, why don't I, you know, do this? It's a song I've been singing since I was a kid. And, and then it became huge. Yeah, that happens so often. People like to think they can predict what's going to be a hit, you know, and yeah. they'll hear a song and know it's a hit. And in fact, so often, nobody really knows. The fact that it's a very good song doesn't really make the difference. It has to resonate with the culture at a particular time in history, and all sorts of stuff has to go right. Yes. So people very often don't know, and very often it is something like that where somebody just at the last minute decides to do a song and it turns out to be a monster hit that nobody saw coming. Mm-hmm. And you were also going to mention the performance by Joni Mitchell. I don't know if you were listening um, when we did um, I, news at the, at the two o'clock, the top of the two o'clock hour. I have my criticisms from time to time about the Associated Press, but the woman who was talking about the Grammys said, and for the older viewers, there was a touching moment. And I'm like, seriously? You know, it's like for, oh, the, yeah. for the elderly in the audience, having Joni Mitchell on stage must have been a, really a yeah. moment for well, them, for us. Well, it's the truth, unfortunately. I mean, this reminds me of on the first Obama campaign um, when I was in Michigan. And uh, it happened that... A whole bunch of surrogates were coming through the state of Michigan, so they needed help with staffing the surrogates, as it's called, where somebody from the campaign accompanies them as they make their appearances. And so the head of the communications team I was on asked me, knowing that I was, you know, a big music fan, and so was he. He had just superb taste in music, in my opinion. <laughs> His name's Brent Colburn. Went on to be a senior member of the administration and is an all-around great guy. But anyway... He says, Carol King is coming through. Um, would you be interested in staffing her? And I said, are you kidding? Oh, my God. Because I just admire her so much, as does any songwriter at all. <laughs> who assume, assuming this, you know, there are any kind of songwriter at all, you know, you have to admire Carol King as you have to admire Joni Mitchell uh, and Tracy Chapman. So anyway, I got to meet Carol King and, and hang out with her for a few days, and it was thrilling for me. And but she was there as a senior citizen surrogate. She was the targeting oh, with surrogates. You know, you target oh, these different populations no. like labor, African Americans, Latinos, etc. She was targeting senior citizens. I said, "Wait a minute, what are you talking about?" But then I did the math. Oh. And I said, "Oh my God, the numbers add up." <laughs> but she's oh. a wonderful person, by the way. In addition to being a genius, she's just the greatest person. Um, one more self-indulgent story. When she did that album, I, was it called Tapestry? Yeah, yeah. And I remember hearing it, and I'm like, 
Why did the why is this woman who, you know, doesn't have the world's greatest voice covering all these songs? Yeah, I was such an she idiot. Wrote <laughs> she wrote them. Yes. Yeah. It was an entire yeah. album of hit after hit after hit. And I had never yeah. realized that she was the brains behind those hits. Yeah, her and, and of course Jerry Goff and her ex husband was who was a great lyricist. But Carol King, what a oh my God. Yeah, I mean some of these people are just otherworldly. Their their talent is just, you know, beyond normal. That's why they are who they are. You know, you run into these people, you realize that there is something different about them. Uh, and Joni Mitchell is like that. She was underestimated, in my opinion, and, and probably still is to a large extent, because she was kind of seen as part of the, you know, flower power movement. And mm-hmm. she was like a classic hippie chick with the long blonde hair mm-hmm. and the acoustic guitar and the dulcimer and stuff. But a brilliant songwriter. Yeah. Truly original, truly, there's nobody like her, just incredibly talented, and which is why she was so highly respected by jazz musicians who played with her, by everybody. She's just truly another one who's just a genius. But, you know, not to just talk about the old folks, because, <laughs> you know, Joni Mitchell is 80, I guess. Um, but, you know, I think Taylor Swift is brilliantly talented. I think Billie Eilish and her brother, Phineas, oh, and Taylor Swift's producer, Jack Antonoff, is a brilliant producer. Um, and uh, Billie Eilish and, and her brother Phineas are brilliantly talented. Uh, so there is, you know, there is brilliant talent uh, coming up in the in the somewhat younger generation as well. We have to yeah. we have to recognize. Yeah, and say, you know, though, it was do, a young person for the most part. Not, what's that? For the most part, it was a young person's night. I mean, Miley Cyrus, yeah. Olivia Rodrigo, Dua Lipa. Yeah, um, I will say though, and. And and this is not, I swear, just the sort of old fogies perspective. Because I, I, you know, I when I was active in the music business, we were very high tech, and I've always been very interested in 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 technology. But I do think there has been a movement towards making music into an industrial product, where you have five or six songwriters on a mm-hmm. song, and they're kind of building a product, and then the production is so technocratic. And all the vocals are auto-tuned and all the drums, even live drums, are run through. There's a software, for example, called Beat Detective that lines up drum beats, drum hits, um, and and all the cymbals and everything. So they're perfectly in time. And the thing is, it actually makes things sound worse uh, in many cases. Um, Of course, it's more technically correct, but in doing that, assuming it was a good drummer, assuming it was a good singer who you auto-tuned, mm-hmm. you are stripping out everything, all the nuance, and essentially making them sound more like a simulation of a human being than an actual human being. Yeah, I am. I met a very famous, again, I'm dating myself because he's old, a very famous record producer by the name of Mike Stone, who had produced mm-hmm. for a lot of really famous bands. And that was back in the day when everything was recorded on tapes, really big yeah. tapes. And he told me there was a there was a very famous drummer who I will not name, who could mm-hmm. not keep a steady beat. And after Mike would record his track, he would come back that night and he would edit the tapes. He would cut the tape so wow. that the beat was in time and and steady. So, you know, they've been they've been correcting musicians yeah. errors for a long time. No, that's true. And, you know, and I remember those days we would record on 24-track tape 
and now you can have a hundred tracks on a song or more if you want, and it's all digital, of course. But uh, the tape was two inches wide, and it we used to have to well, or our you know publishing company used to have to pay two hundred and some dollars a reel for what amounted to fifteen minutes of recording time on two inches of tape. And I can remember this fantastic engineer we were working with in a great studio. Actually, his name was. I think his name was Mike Jones. Was it the same guy? Mike Stone is the guy I'm talking about. Mike uh, Stone. Sorry, Mike Stone. This is, okay, Mike Jones. Anyway, I think it was Mike. I watched him once cut a, a little window, a little square hole in a two-inch tape to cut out a single snare drum hit that would have been on, like, track number six or something, right? Which is not wow. marked. He had to eyeball it. He had to know where it was. And he cut it out because we decided we didn't want that snare drum hit anymore. <laughs> Nowadays, of course, you do that. You do that in a second, you know, digitally, mm. um, and it's no problem. And you can completely rhythmically align the entire drum performance in a second if you want. And, and same with tuning all the vocals and all that stuff. <laughs> Well, it may seem to those of you listening that I have taken Spencer very far afield, but not really, because as those of you who listen and are very politically aware, I'm sure you've come into contact with the fact that the right, those who are very right, far right politically, have a real bone to pick with Taylor Swift. They seem to be very, very afraid of this young woman. And when we come back from a break, I'm going to talk to Spencer Critchley about that right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Spencer Critchley, excuse me, author and uh, host of the podcast, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. We were just talking about the Grammys. Of course, it was a huge night for Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift, who is apparently a CIA psyop, she was recruited years ago, Spencer, um, and this whole romance with Travis Kelsey is all fake, and uh, the Super Bowl is rigged, and halfway through the Super Bowl, she's going to endorse Joe Biden, which is the whole point of the whole psyop. And um, what... You know, Jimmy Kimmel joked in his monologue last week that, you know, it may not be Roe v. Wade that brings down the Republican Party. It may be the fact that they're going after Taylor Swift that brings yeah. down the Republican Party. I mean, come on. What what? Oh, my gosh. What um, what strategist is saying? Yeah, this is a good thing. Keep doing this, guys. This is good. This will help us. Yeah, I mean, especially because Taylor Swift, by all the evidence, is such a wholesome, positive force for mm. good in the music business. I mean, what's what's to criticize? You know, she's actually a very, very, very good songwriter. She's a great performer. Um, she treats her fans really well, you know. She, she seems to have very humane values. You never hear about these awful scandals, you know, and even from the point of view of, you know, um, traditional values, conservatives not liking the entertainment industry because of, you know, sex and violence and stuff. She she doesn't do that stuff either. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, she just seems like such a nice presence in the world and she's super successful. And so I suppose I don't imagine that Republicans want to be against that, you know, that she's a very successful, very smart business person. 
I um, think that it seems actually, the root of it seems to be that they're somehow afraid that in endorsing Joe Biden, which she has given absolutely no indication that she intends to do. Um, but somehow that that could, I guess, just be, I don't know, yeah. uh, uh, the reason that Donald Trump loses. Well, I think it's it's kind of similar to the radical Christian fundamentalist right and their hatred for Islamic jihadism uh, is not that they object to theocratic totalitarian regimes is they hate the competition. (laughs) And I think in this case, they're looking at Taylor Swift and saying, man, we wish we had that kind of propaganda tool because yeah. we're stuck with Kid Rock, basically. And I know. <laughs> you know so, so I think that that's part of it. But and I and then I think I sometimes wonder, frankly, if part of it is that the people pushing it who know, obviously, it's not true because they made it up. <laughs> they almost gleefully put stuff out there. To see just how gullible their voters are, you know, as a cruel sort of form of fun, because I think they feel a great deal of contempt for their voters, as Trump does. And ultimately, psychologically, I think that kind of contempt comes from self-loathing. I think a lot of these people are racked with self-loathing. Um, and people like that project it onto other people and like to, to be cruel to other people and you know, trick well, I, I agree with you that I think, choices so they can mock yeah. and feel better about themselves. I do think that um, pe- a lot of people who are cruel do it because of their own um, lack of self self worth, um, and I do think that they are very jealous. Because you're right. Who do they have? They have Gene Simmons. They have Kid Rock. They have Ted Nugent. Not exactly anybody. And, you know, even on um, on Fox one morning, one of the uh, hosts was saying that supposedly as many as 20 percent of Taylor Swift's followers have said that they would vote however she tells them to vote. And then, of course, the woman went on to say, of course, it's mostly 15 year old girls. So I guess we really don't have to worry about them, you know. Yeah, and again, there's the fear, right? It's just the fear of losing and the fear that she could swing enough votes to make the difference. And and I think, as I say, envy and resentment that she's such a powerfully influential celebrity, and they, they don't tend to get people with that level of influence. Also, you know, I really think that what's really central to this, and it's central to right-wing movements, extreme right-wing movements throughout history and across the world, is fear and hatred of women um, seems to be deeply embedded in the appeal of the worldview. If you look at, well, the cruelty that gets directed towards women by people like Donald Donald Trump just in their day-to-day lives, but also in the policies that his party is pursuing, you know, you you can make an ethical, moral argument against abortion rights, if, if it you know violates your religious beliefs or whatever. I respect people who have sincere moral objections to abortion rights, even though I disagree with them. But, you know, the abortion 
control legislation we see being pushed now is just so obviously cruel. And to see women having to flee states at risk of their lives and, you know, young girls being forced or anybody being forced to give birth, but especially young girls, it's just unimaginably cruel. And then if you, you look at the rise of extreme right-wing movements, um, say in the last hundred years, I think that we we don't appreciate the worldwide scope of that rise because at the same time that Italian fascism and and Nazism in Germany was rising, fascism was spreading across Europe, including within countries that were invaded uh, by the Axis powers. Like, you know, there were lots of fascists already in France and in Italy and Hungary and Romania and, and a lot of these countries that got invaded. And Islamic, radical Islamic fundamentalism, the, the violent jihadism that's represented by people like the extreme end of the Muslim Brotherhood, ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Iranian regime, these folks, that's essentially a fascist movement, and, and the founders of that movement, going back to the 1920s and 30s, uh, especially starting in the 30s, were openly allied with Hitler and admired Hitler, and they admired its program to exterminate all the Jews, and they admired the fascist elements of it as well. And similarly, you have the same urge to control women and punish, torture, and kill them if they step out of line, and terror of women's bodies, you know, that... Um, and at the same time, the promise that if you engage in violent jihad and martyr yourself, you'll end up being greeted by 70 virgins you can have sex with in the afterlife. Um, you know, let me make clear, I'm not denigrating Islam as a religion. I'm denigrating the, the grotesque distortion of it that is Islamic jihadism, Islamist jihadism. But that's a fascist movement, and, and fear and hatred of women is central to it, as it was to European fascism and as it is to American fascism in, in, the, in the form of Trumpism. And so Taylor Swift also becomes a target because she is a completely independent, unassailably successful and powerful female and essentially out of control from this point mm -hmm, of view. Mm -hmm. She's an out-of-control woman. You can't control a billionaire, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that that's part of it, too, is just that kind of... I don't think this is true of all Trump supporters, but it, it's central to tr Trumpism, and I think Trump himself, to constantly need to treat women as objects that you can play with and cast aside and... It, it links back to that self-loathing, I think, it, it, because you you have this deep need to humiliate and, and hurt them, um, which I I think, you know, many psychologists and psychiatrists would say is very common. Um, it, you know, Freudians and, and post-Freudians would argue it's, it's part of what happens after birth when you have to start to separate from your mother and the mother becomes an object of fear and, and even revulsion and people, male and female, many people in this tradition would argue never really get over that. And this is part of the raw deal that women get that, and that mothers get is that it just seems to be part of human psychological development. That is in order to separate yourself from total dependence and unification with your mother, you have to hate your mother and and you end up and you fear the power of your mother and i think a lot of these people 
who are like this as adults never got past that stage and they're stuck fearing and hating women is essentially my psychological um, amateur psychological analysis of it but it's oh, whatever it is, it's, a, it's a remarkable phenomenon yeah, I want to. I want to continue this discussion. We need to. Uh, we need to take a break. I'm talking to Spencer Critchley. We are going to return to this discussion right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm speaking with uh, Spencer Critchley, author of Patriots of Two Nations and host of the podcast, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. And we've been talking about, well, it started with Taylor Swift, but a, a larger discussion of this misogyny that seems to be ever more present in the Republican Party. And, you know, you're right, Spencer, and it isn't just, oh, you know, we want to undermine Taylor Swift. She's this powerful woman we can't control. But it moved from, well, you know, we just Roe v. Wade. It's just a question of states' rights. And but now you're hearing things like uh, states that want to pass legislation that a woman isn't allowed to leave the state for an abortion that there's going to they're going to try to, you know, put a damper on that. And oh, by the way, maybe in vitro fertilization should be banned. And you know what? Maybe birth control shouldn't be so widely available. It really is this sort of desperate attempt to return to the United the United States to some sort of idealized in their mind version of the 1950s, it seems. Yeah, and you know, and it's kind of it's an invented version as well, because yes, better or for worse, abortion has been practiced throughout history. Um, it's it just used to be way less safe, and in terms of this obsessive focus on controlling abortion, that's a very recent phenomenon. It only dates to about the 1970s, and the. Southern Baptist Church, for example, I believe this is right, used to have no position on abortion. And many of its leaders were essentially in favor of it. And the Republican Party used to be quite liberal on abortion rights. And a lot of the reason why there there came to be this focus on abortion is that after the 1960s, it had become harder and harder to openly target racists. You know, there's the great transition during the 60s when the Democratic Party finally abandoned its unholy alliance with the Dixiecrats, the Southern racist Democrats, and surrendered them to the Republicans who who happily scooped them up because the Republicans had always struggled to win national elections. And this was a new coalition for them if they could get hold of the racist Southern Democrats, and, and they could become Republicans, and the, Dem- the Republicans could start winning elections. And that started with the 68 campaign for Nixon. But they they recognized they, they had to, they could no longer be openly racist to appeal to racist voters, so that's why Nixon was campaigning on law and order. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because mm-hmm. these are code words, because they... Sure, and, and Reagan with his welfare who, cheats... You know, you know? Exactly. Welfare queens who didn't exist. It was, you know, the, the welfare queens supposedly be supposedly driving a a gold Cadillac. Obviously, there were people cheating on welfare, but in nothing like the numbers that they were talking about. And of course, there are, pe- there are people running corporations who are cheating every day, too, obviously. But 
you know, the, the point was they, they had to motivate these voters, and it was getting harder to make openly or even veiled racist appeals. But it was discovered you could, if they made a, abortion into a traditional values slash religious issue, they could motivate people that way. So you can track when abortion suddenly became an issue of concern on the, on the right when it hadn't been before. And it was ginned up essentially by people running Republican political campaigns as a voter mobilization tool. And they ran on it for decades. And the Republican candidates were, most of them were non-serious about it. They were just exploiting their base to get their votes. And they would promise to end abortion and and never actually do anything about it once they were elected because they knew it was a really unpopular uh, position overall to be against abortion rights. But it, you know, it's the famous case, of, as has often been noted, of the, the dog finally caught the car. And, and when the populist base was able to take over the Republican Party, suddenly Republican politicians were forced to deliver on this phony promise to end abortion they've been mm-hmm. making decades. And um, so they did. And now they're now they're wrestling with the political fallout of that because it is deeply unpopular. But the trouble is, meanwhile, women have to suffer as, as their rights are taken away and as they're they're exposed to very serious health risks. Yeah, and I think you're you're absolutely right. It wasn't an issue that was core to who they were as Republicans. It was a way to stoke the outrage machine. And when that outrage, um, you know, when you finally accomplish that particular goal, you have to find the next outrage, which is why it makes perfect sense that Donald Trump is telling Republicans in Congress, don't vote for any kind of bill that contains any kind of change or any money for the border, because I want that issue. I want to be able to say Joe Biden hasn't done anything. And here's the difference this time around. I think a lot of people were fooled um, with the abortion issue and Republicans framed it as something they cared about when, when I don't believe they did. This time, though, we're seeing behind the curtain. We're seeing Donald Trump say, hey, guys, um, I know you fought for this and demanded it and you got it, but don't vote on it. Don't vote on it because I don't want anything to happen that Joe Biden could frame as a win. And to me, that's a little bit different. I mean, yes, I know that the people who are um, the cult like followers of Donald Trump won't care, but the people who are still able to think at least a little bit for themselves, don't you think that they're going to have to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, he's actually telling them not to vote for this so he can he, so he can claim nothing's gotten done when it, it's now apparent to me he'll be the reason why nothing gets done? Do you think that this time now that we can see behind the curtain it'll be different? Well, of course, uh, I think yes. Overall, I think I don't think Trump is going to win. Of course, I can't be sure, and I think I don't think he's going to win because he's alienating moderate voters uh, enough to uh, tip it towards the Democrats. But that said, his base doesn't see behind the curtain because it never appears on Fox News, you know, or on mm-hmm. Newsmax, or I'm not sure if OAN is still around. Uh, um, they certainly got much reduced footprint from their already small one before, but Fox News obviously is a behemoth, and the 
all the sort of related online stuff and social media stuff, you know, this stuff just doesn't appear. So very, a great many of Trump's base voters are unaware of many of the stories that seem like they should be the end of his campaign. I mean, this recent $83 million verdict against him for the continued slandering of um, defamation of Eugene Carroll. Yeah. Many of his voters are not aware that happened. And of course, once they become aware of it, they just assume it was Joe Biden ordered it. It's yet another conspiracy. But I yeah. think overall, I, I think your point is right, that Trump is losing um, independent and persuadable voters. Uh, his support is rock solid with his base, but very weak overall. You know, I'm certainly not the first to notice that in Iowa, he uh, got 50 percent support. You know, he crushed his, uh, his competition in the form of Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, um, and the others who were still in. But he only had a little over 50% support there, whereas somebody was quick to note. Um, you know, imagine if if Obama, for some reason, was able to run again and was running in primaries again, you could expect, you know, somewhere around 98% support you would expect would be what you'd get from Democrats if Obama were running. Or what just happened with Biden, something like what was it, 96% or, or more, 98% in South Carolina, and there's Trump with 50. So I think those are, you know, huge warning signs and an indication that in the end, I think he's likely to lose. Unless a third party candidate messes up the whole electoral college system that I'm still worried about that. Are you not worried about that? Yeah, no, I, I think that anybody who's doing that is behaving very irresponsibly, unless they feel their only responsibility is to try to help Trump win and, and hasten the end of democracy, basically. Mm. And replace democracy with authoritarianism, which they're now, of course, many of Trump's supporters, including people who are in the running for senior cabinet positions, are now openly saying that democracy isn't all that great and we, we basically do need a strong man. Um, yeah. But yeah, these third party candidacies. Like no labels, it's hard to see that as anything other than uh, a pack for Trump. Um, I don't know if that's literally how they see themselves as trying to elect Trump, but that's in effect what they're doing. I also think, frankly, Cornell West and I don't think Marianne Williamson is having much impact. It looks like I guess Cornell West is having even less impact. But um, those are vanity projects, and any votes you siphon away from Joe Biden, I think, is a deeply irresponsible thing to do. And and vanity in both senses in that it's vain. It's a vain effort to get anywhere in politics. And it's also vain in the sense of it's egotistical. Why is this Cornell West moment to try to shift the United States in the progressive direction he thinks it should go in? Uh, why is this Marianne Williamson's moment or Dean Phillips's moment? Um, I, I just think it's irresponsible given that it's no exaggeration to say that if Trump does manage to win again in November, we will, at that point, be in a new era where we no longer have the democracy we once had, and it'll be a question of whether we could get it back anytime soon. Uh, um, Spencer, you and I have talked before about what, um, like, the motivation, the um, it, the emotional reaction to events, and 
how that causes people to move in a certain direction. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you. I saw some reporter put together a bunch of clips. They were at a Trump rally and person after person was saying that, you know, if he wanted to be a dictator, that was a okay with them. And then Sarah Longwell, who is one of the contributors to the Bulwark, she does um, focus groups where she gets people together and talks about a certain topic. And one of the things that she talked about recently with a group was, could a woman be president? And I will share with you some of the comments. Uh, let's just say it didn't make me happy. Uh, Spencer Critchley and I are going to take a break. We're going to be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Spencer Critchley's book is Patriots of Two Nations, and in that book, he talks about uh, the differences in voters, how some are reacting to Trump in a sort of a limbic kind of uh, kind of way, as opposed to, you know, Democrats who are trying to appeal to somebody's intellectual functioning. And along those lines, there were interviews with a group of Trump supporters, men and women, who said over and over again, that not only would they have no problem with Trump being a dictator, but maybe, just maybe, that's exactly what this country needs as a strong leader. And then there was a focus group, a small group of people gathered together to give their opinions um, that Sarah Longwell did. And she was talking, uh, I guess in reference to Nikki Haley, but she was talking about the idea of a female president. And again, these were not... The ones I saw were not particularly young, but they weren't particularly old either. I would call them middle-aged, oldish, middle-aged folks. And the women were saying things like, oh, you know, I just don't think a woman could be president. You know, women, women are so emotional. And, you know, like what kinds of decisions would a woman president make when, you know, when she was on her period? You know, would that like disrupt her? And it was like... My jaw dropped lower and lower and lower with everyone. You know, women are great, but, you know, men, men are better at making decisions and we're better at like the interpersonal stuff. And I thought to myself, have I time traveled? Have I time traveled back to a different era? Am I in the 1800s? What? You talked about. How with at least some men in the Republican Party, this uh, reaction to people like Taylor Swift is really based in almost a kind of self-loathing. Do you see that same kind of, you know, you've been told your whole life you're not as smart, you're not as good, you can't do what a man does. And at a certain point, do you just internalize it and make it your own? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good thinking on the, on the subject of the power of the worldview. Uh, so we don't, and I'm writing about this now, uh, working on it for my next book. But, you know, we don't actually live in the world because we don't have direct access to reality. We only interpret reality through our senses and through the concepts we have to make sense of it. And so what we live in is a worldview. And it, but it feels very much exactly the same as actual reality. And so if you're raised within a worldview in which women can't be leaders and they're emotional and, you know, they're irrational and 
all of that stuff, and men are strong and decisive and, and rational and all of that. Um, it just seems like natural reality to you. And you often hear this, you know, the democratic messaging alienates people who are raised in this traditional kind of religious, traditional values worldview. And here come the Democrats saying there's more than two genders, which, you know, from within that worldview just sounds like insanity. You know, that's a, to them, that's like saying there's no such thing as gravity. You know, up is down, down is up. It just seems absurd because in their world slash worldview, there are only two genders and nothing could be more obvious. Just look at them. Look how different they are. And then a lot of stuff flows from that. So that's part of a big part of what's being dealt with here. And in my book, which you so kindly mentioned, that's what it's about, really, is that Trump supporters are living in a pre-enlightenment, pre-modern worldview. And this is not to say they're stupid, because not all of them are stupid. Um, but many of them willingly reject the enlightenment worldview dominated by reason and science and our concepts of liberal democracy, individual rights, equality, all of that, and essentially choose to live in a more feudal kind of worldview and where Trump is more like a feudal king anointed mm. by God and endowed with superhuman powers and command over reality. So when he's lying, he's, he's actually creating reality. The reason yeah. it seems like it's not true is that he has He's so powerful, it becomes true because he wills it to be true. It's a more incantatory, magical use of language. Um, so, yeah, it's the power of worldview, and that's what you're getting glimpses into. And this is what Democrats typically struggle with because so many of them are stuck, so much as I've said many times before in our conversations, inside this very rationalistic Enlightenment worldview, which is another worldview, right? It's not absolute reality. It's a way of interpreting, mm -hmm. of experiencing and interpreting the world within that framework. But that framework itself is severely limited in many ways in that it, it cages you off from all of the mystical, intuitive stuff, spiritual, poetic stuff that actually you get ready, more ready access to if you reject reason. Not that I recommend it, but if you live within this <laughs> other worldview, <laughs> um, you uh, you know, part of the appeal of it is you're back in the world of pre-enlightenment, you know, feudalistic magic, where everywhere you look, there's the presence of God working through the world and, you know, portents and signs and a sense of meaning in your life and purpose. And part of worldview theory is what's known as terror management theory. A worldview helps you manage your terror of dying, essentially. If you have a worldview that explains everything to you, it gives your life meaning. And maybe you believe you'll never die. For example, if you go to heaven or if you go to if you're an Islamic fundamentalist, you know, jihadist, you're going to go to paradise and with the virgins and all that. And so this is what terror management theory says. So to challenge somebody's worldview, you're essentially exposing them to the terrifying thought that you're going to die. And it could be that it means nothing. And actually, this is the worst case with Democrats. At a very, you know, intuitive gut level, Democrats are often essentially selling that message by being so rationalistic because they they will not address a, you know, a sense of. It's not true of all of them. It's, it's exceptions are like Obama and Biden, for example. But many will are so rationalistic. They're essentially the deal they're offering voters is: look, you, we're all going to inevitably die. That includes you. It means nothing. But in the meantime, here's a list of our really carefully thought through policies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see where that would be a tough sell. That's a that's a hard sell.
Yeah. Oh, it makes perfect sense then that people would have their um, hesitations about embracing that. You know, you mentioned with the exception of Biden and Obama, there's I'm sure you saw the reports recently that behind closed doors, you know, Joe Biden had some really bad things yeah. to say about Donald Trump. I mean, he used bad words. And I'm thinking that's not going to hurt Joe Biden at all. And it might oh, no, even help him. Yeah, and I don't know, but I suspect that was leaked by the Biden campaign uh, deliberately because they certainly didn't seem they seemed quite pleased with it. And I actually think that uh, with the start of the year, as they said they would, they have really kicked into gear. And so far, I'm very happy with what I'm seeing from them. It, it looks like they're doing it the same way it was done with um, Obama, which is this combination of really smart and data driven, but also really knowing that the message must be emotional. You know, you must communicate on this symbolic level I'm describing with this sense of mission and that this is meaningful and it's about values. And a lot of what they're doing with Biden is they are meeting Trump head on with like the dark branded stuff, uh, you know, with instantly retweeting all of Trump's crazy stuff, all of every video clip with Trump saying mm-hmm. something crazy and unhinged or apparently demented. Um, in terms of, you know, dementia. Um, I, I love to see that because they, I'm, again, I'm guessing from the outside, but I'm pretty confident about this guess. They understand that what's appealing about that is that Biden just comes across as strong because ultimately people want a strong leader. Trump is not wrong. People want a strong man. It doesn't make sense, and it can be alarming to liberal rationalists, but it's true. It's in there in human nature. It's in there in ape nature that People want a strong man. And, and so you have to direct that urge in a better direction. But you're not going to do it by communicating the idea that you're not strong. So I, I think it's great to present Biden as leaning into the attacks on him, leaning into the Brandon stuff, um, because they're communicating strength and confidence, which is like, you know, requirement mm-hmm. number one for us when we choose a leader. So better to a make a bad decision, but make it firmly and quickly and strongly yeah. than to dither. Well, yeah, communicate the strength and the confidence. Yeah. And uh, and clarity, you know, simple message. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think of George W. Bush, you know, and the rubble right after 9-11, and he really... I didn't really think, you know, much of his presidency in general, of course, but he rose to the communications moment at that moment when he just spoke clearly, you know, saying they'll hear from all of us soon. And there was none of this. I, I, you know, my nightmare would be that a Democratic president in that situation might start to go on and on about, you know, how to understand what just happened. Mm-hmm. Like a, like an academic lecture. Yeah, you know, and complex, you know, the historical roots of this. And worst case would be to sound like you were justifying it because you have to look at the root causes, mm-hmm. and the history of American policy in the Middle East, and you know, well, or just real anything quick because we're, we're in time. Saying, no, at a moment like this, you can't do this. Don't you think I I was I thought it was very interesting when we had that uh, drone that got through and ended up killing three U.S. service people recently. 
um, because apparently there was some confusion because one of our drones was coming in at the same time and people weren't sure if this other one was, a you know, one of ours and until it was too late. And from all the articles I read, it was like, um, you know, this was this wasn't a huge surprise. Drones have been coming. They knew they've been dealing with this. Um and it was sort of like, you know, we mess we messed up. So it was not something that the enemy did that was new. It was something we did that was new and that we didn't catch it. And yet um, Joe Biden decided that there would be retaliatory strikes because you don't kill our people without retaliation. And yet the articles were like, this is something that they deal with every day. You know, yes, this was a little bit different, but it was different because of us. It wasn't different because of anything that that the other side did. And yet. He took um, a very forceful action, and I think it plays into exactly what you're talking about. This, you know, I am the strong man. I'm not going to let this go unchecked. Yeah, it might have been our fault, but so what, you know? I don't think it was. I don't think it was our fault, you know, because they've been trying to do this over and over again, and it just happened to work that time. Uh, and I'm not recommending, like, taking rash decisions just because they play well politically. I think you have to do the deliberation behind the scenes. But I think a, a Biden was right to take strong action because there has to be, you know, I think we have to be careful about declaring red lines, but there are some. You can't kill Americans. And once you do that, we're not going to discuss all the reasons that you might come up with a justification for it. You just can't do it. And there have to be consequences, immediate and severe consequences when you do that. And so I think Biden really rose to the occasion there that there's no time for no need to get into complexities here. It's just this is just clearly something we are not going to allow. And here come the consequences. Yeah. Spencer, thank you for joining me. It is always a delight to talk with you. And uh, I look forward to the new book. When do you think it'll be done? Oh, boy, I'm not I'm not making predictions. I'm actually wondering. I think I, what I might do is is in the meantime, um, update Patriots of Two Nations for 2024 and uh just add a you know a, a chapter and an ending to update my predictions, for example, and see how they went, okay. and, um, and talk about uh, you know what we've learned in the meantime. Which I'm afraid is, I think my predictions were generally um, accurate, except that we got the worst possible outcome, um, possibly even worse than what I predicted as the worst outcome. Okay, well, I look forward to that upbeat conversation. Uh, but until then, you can listen to Spencer's podcast, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Spencer. Always appreciate oh, it. My pleasure, Joan. Always a pleasure for me, too. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. There are a couple of amazing books that I want to tell you about. One is called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. It is about segregation in this country. The other book, which is a beautiful way to dovetail these two together, is called Just Action, how to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law by Richard Rothstein and Leah Rothstein, who both join us now to talk about these works. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. Uh, I'd like to start with the color of law. And let me see if I can hang on. I've got to find my marked pages here. <clears throat> I was dog-earing pages. I usually go with post notes because post notes are easier to find. But, let, well, let me just start at the beginning uh, from, the, from the preface. Richard, you make the point that, you know, when people talk about segregation, they talk about a lot of different reasons why segregation did take place, does take place. But a lot of what they talk about are things that people themselves, decisions that people themselves control. And what you want people to know is that over and above that, in ways that most of us uh, have never been aware of, we have actually legislated segregation in ways that it aren't readily obvious. Could you talk about that to start with? Sure. Uh, we call our conventional view of segregation de facto segregation. It just happened in fact, not in mm-hmm. law. It mm-hmm. happened because of private discrimination or people liking to live with each other of the same race. It turns out that's other nonsense. The reason we have segregation in this country is because of federal, state, and local policies, written policies frequently, uh, that were designed to ensure that African Americans and whites couldn't live near one another in any metropolitan area of the country. The federal government subsidized this urbanization of this country, and they did it by telling developers that they could get federal bank guarantees for their loans to build the suburbs only if they refused to sell to African-Americans. The developers may have been bigots. Maybe if they were left on their own devices, they would have discriminated anyway. But they weren't left to their own devices. If the federal government had told these developers at a time when the homes in these suburbs were affordable to working-class families, black and white, returning home veterans, if the federal government had told these developers, we'll guarantee your bank loans only if you sell homes on a non-discriminatory basis, as the federal government was required under the Constitution to do, we would have a non-segregated society today. And one of the things that surprised me was how long this went on. I mean, you know, this isn't something... Um, you know, from a hundred years ago. I mean, you talk about actions that were taken in the 60s and in the 70s and even how in the 90s uh, Bill Clinton wanted a conversation on race. Like somehow by talking about this, it uh, sort of muddied the waters about actual legislation. Um, and then um, this whole idea... Uh, that the idea now with a no um, no DEI, you know, no, we're not going to look at, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, because the best way to counter this is to just not talk about race at all. That has never made sense to me. Could you talk about that? Well, sure. Let me proceed with the example I just gave. Those suburbs in the... Uh 20th century that were created by the federal government on a discriminatory basis were, as I said, inexpensive. They sold in those days around the 1950s, late 1940s, for about $100,000 in today's money. Today, those homes don't sell for $100,000, not in the suburbs of Chicago, not in the suburbs of any community in this country. They sell for 
300, $400,000, $500,000, in some places a million dollars or more. Those homes are no longer affordable to the African Americans who were excluded from them by federal policy, while the whites who were subsidized to move into those homes gained equity from wealth from it. Well, we passed the Fair Housing Act in 1968. The Fair Housing Act said, okay, African Americans, you can now buy homes in these suburbs, but the homes are unaffordable to African-Americans who would have been able to buy them, their families would have been able to buy them at the times they were built and the times whites were buying them. So saying that we're going to just now not discriminate anymore and just be fair and neutral to everybody will not do anything to undo the segregation that we created. Sure, a few African-American families, a few white families, working-class, middle-class families can now afford to buy homes uh, in suburbs that cost $500,000, but not the number that, of African-Americans that would be there had they not been excluded from, from um, buying there. The only whites who can be there typically are those who inherited down payments from their parents because of the equity that those parents and grandparents gained as a result of this explicit racial policy on the part of the federal government. That uh, we've talked about that on this show before about how the um, the inability to accumulate generational wealth really contributes to a lot of these problems, and you touch on that as part of this uh, as as part of this whole issue. Um, I mean, exactly what you just described is true. You, if you don't have your family uh, giving you a leg up, well, then you have to try to do it on your own or just simply not do it at all? Well, that's correct. I'll give you one other example quickly before we move on to what we can do about it. We underestimate the extent to which government was involved in all of this segregation. And I gave you the example of the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration. But the real estate industry was complicit. The real estate agents uh, throughout the 20th century refused to sell homes to African-Americans in white neighborhoods, steered African-Americans to low-income black neighborhoods, steered Mm -hmm. whites away from diverse neighborhoods. Well, every one of those real estate agents was licensed by state governments in violation of the 14th Amendment. Every time a state, Illinois and any other state, licensed a real estate agent who subscribed to their real estate uh, industry's code of ethics that said you could not sell a home in a white neighborhood to a black family, any time that license was renewed, the state licensing agency was violating the 14th Amendment. And this has never been remedied. I love the fact that you lay out the problem and the historical underpinnings of the problem in The Color of Law, and then go on to write a companion book, Just Action, how to, you know, because people who listen to this radio station are very involved politically, and they are the kind of people to want to know, what can I do? And I've, um, Richard and Leah, I'm not sure which book uh, it came from, but I was, I'd never heard the term resegregation before, and I found reading about that Fascinating. Leah, would you explain what resegregation is? 
Sure. We wrote about uh, three communities around the country who, in the mid-20th century, they were all white sort of inner ring suburbs to the cities. One was Oak Park, Illinois, outside of Chicago, uh, one outside of Cleveland, and one outside of Philadelphia. All these communities were white suburban communities, and black families started to move into them. And what they saw happening in in neighboring communities is those areas would resegregate. Once African Americans started moving into a white community, realtors would in incite uh, white flight. They would mm-hmm. incite fear in the white homeowners that their property values would decline and that they should sell quickly. So they would sell at low prices, and those same realtors would then sell the homes at jacked up prices to the incoming African American families. Those communities would then resegregate and become all black communities because the whites were sort of um, told they should be afraid of the incoming black families and they should leave. Um, now, the three communities that we profiled did something different, and they organized amongst their neighbors. They talked to each other. They decided they didn't want to go that direction. They wanted to be an integrated community that welcomed new African-American families and didn't feel the need to flee. Um, and so they all created this sort of shared culture of being integrated and inclusive. They passed policies, um, advocated for changes in their local government. You know, they outlawed that uh, the practice of realtors to put up a lot of for sale signs to incite this fear mm-hmm. in whites and, and incite white flight. They um, passed programs where they could approve realtors that sold on an open basis, on a non-discriminatory basis, and then the city would kind of put them on an approved realtor list. Um, So they passed some local policies. Um, One, in Oak Park, they passed what they call the Home Equity Insurance Program, where instead of white families being so afraid that their property values would decline that they left, they could buy into this insurance program that insured them against future property value decline. Now, that sort of, you know, um, helped helped keep the fear from making all these families leave. And what happened with that program is, you know, some families, some, some households bought into the insurance program. It never made a payment. It never made a payout because property values didn't decline. And in fact, when communities start to integrate, um, property values go up because there's more demand from all races for those homes. So um, these are some examples of what communities can do to um, support and create integrated, healthy, stabilized, mm-hmm. desegregated communities. And you say in the in the book that uh, Oak Park uh, just did away with the insurance program after 30 years because it just wasn't ever used, didn't seem to be needed. It wasn't needed, never made a payout. Yeah. And isn't that isn't that a terrific a terrific story, um, and you know it, it's near and dear to our hearts since um, Oak Park is um, is not too far from from where I live, and I have a lot of friends who live there. And Oak Parkians are very proud of um, of their town and and their history. Um, we um, Leah and Richard Rothstein, we need to take a break. Uh, real quick, and we're going to continue to discuss their two books, The Color of Law and uh, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation, enacted under The Color of Law. We'll talk more about that when we come right back. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Richard Rothstein and Leah Rothstein. They've written two books that uh, dovetail. One is The Color of Law. 
which is the history of uh, segregation, and the other one is Just Action, how to challenge segregation uh, enacted under the color of law. And um, Richard and Leah, uh, you know, politics can be a little dark, and so I, I kind of shifted over to the book of solutions and remedies a little uh, faster than I otherwise would have. Richard, I'm not trying to give the color of law a short shrift here, um, but, you know, it seems like so much of what we're talking about these days, people feel helpless. And it's so nice to have a book that says, you know what? Here are some things that people tried, and you know what? Some of them worked, and this is this is how we get out of this mess. But uh, shifting back to uh, the color of law, Richard, I know you uh, you write a little bit about First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, and I read a fictionalized account of her efforts on behalf of African Americans. It was a book called The First Ladies, and until I read that, and again, it was fiction. Um, I didn't realize how hard she had worked to try to get, say, anti-lynching bills passed and how to get African-Americans involved in the federal government. And at least according to the fictionalized account, you know, a lot of times um, her efforts didn't come to fruition because at the time, you know, um, her husband was trying to pass, you know, major legislation, you know, creating Social Security and a lot of other things. And he was terrified that he would lose the votes, especially of the Southern Democrats, if he was seen as too focused on the issues of black people. Tell me what how you observe and write about in your book, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and and what effect she had. Well, she didn't have much effect because, as she <laughs> well, said, yeah. her husband was determined not to um, lose any votes for his economic program. But I think we exaggerate the extent to which he did this on, uh, in, in deference to Southern Democrats. It was Northern Democrats as well. I think really? it's uh, too easy to blame some of Sure. Well, in Chicago, as well as elsewhere in the country, the New Deal built public housing projects. Segregated, always frequently segregating communities that weren't segregated before. Southern Democrats didn't care whether housing projects in the North were segregated. So long as the federal government segregated in the South, they would have been perfectly happy. Just like they didn't care if if schools in the North were were segregated or integrated, so long as they could segregate the ones in the South. In the the color of law, I tell the story of the great African-American poet and... um, novelist Langston Hughes, who wrote in his autobiography that he grew up in an integrated Cleveland neighborhood. He went to high school. He dated a Polish girl there. He uh, dated a Jewish girl there. He said his best friend was Polish. Um, It was an integrated neighborhood in an integrated downtown Cleveland neighborhood, not something we think about today. Uh, But um, uh, the federal government went into that that neighborhood, demolished housing, and built two separate projects, one for whites, one for African-Americans, creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. Now, let me say this. I don't think you left the color of law too quickly to get to <laughs> what we can do about it now, because that's where we should be. Um, what we um, assumed after the color of law, so many people asked us, uh, what can we do about it? 20 million Americans participated in Black Lives Matter demonstrations. 
there were whites and blacks, suburban and urban, um, low income and middle income. And then they went home and put Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns and did nothing further. And Leah and I thought that the reason was that they didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And there is no federal will now to, to change these policies at the national level. But there is so much that can be done at the local level uh, by concerned citizens like your listeners who can uh, challenge segregation locally. Because once you have a segregated society that may have been created primarily by the federal government, it's local programs and policies that reinforce and sustain it. And that can be challenged by concerned citizens in their own communities. That will make a significant dent in in the segregation that we have. So in Just Action, we wrote about many, many things that local activists and citizens, concerned citizens, can do to challenge segregation. Uh, We said that it doesn't matter where you start, so long as you start somewhere, you win small victories and they build to larger ones. So that's where I think we should be, is thinking about what we can actually do rather than be passive in the face of federal inaction and uh, national reaction against um, racial justice. Leah, do you see the tide turning? Are we really making solid inroads here, or um, are we simply at the beginning of this journey? Well, I do think that it is... We are on a journey. I'm not sure what point we are at. But, you know, in writing this book, we, as you said, we write about dozens of strategies and policies and programs that local groups can advocate for or implement in their own communities. And for each one, we give an example of a community somewhere in the country who has successfully done that. So, you know, I started writing this project on this project not sure that we would find a lot of examples of success stories of communities challenging segregation. But I come out of it, you know, the research for the book and then going around the country talking about it, very hopeful that I think in, you know, despite what's happening in national politics, on the local level, there's a lot of appetite, a lot of hunger for strategies and actions that we can take to begin to address and redress segregation. And there are communities all over the country starting to take those actions. And I find that very hopeful. And I think that we are in the journey of getting there, for sure. Is there, um, other than the communities you wrote about in the book, is there any community that's come to your attention where you really think they're uh, doing the, the work the right way, they're on the cutting edge of this issue? There are so many that are, and, you know, we write about all of these various strategies and policies that a community can work on, and we don't attempt to say that one is more important than the other. I I wouldn't say, I don't know of a community that's acting on all of them because they they all take time. They're sort of incremental steps to get us there, but there are so many communities that are taking those steps and doing it very well. Um, I'll give just one very recent example is I was recently in Louisville, Kentucky, to talk about just action. And that community has, uh, their city planning department has done a very extensive sort of history, a storyboard online of the history of how their city came to be segregated, all of the policies, all of the programs, all of the court cases that went into creating and maintaining that segregation. They took that around the city to show residents and they did um, 
sort of programs and interactive uh, workshops with the community about what they wanted their community to look like and how mm-hmm. they could create enough housing for everyone. They brought Lego sets to, for, to, for community members to build sort of imagined communities that included all kinds of housing. And they're using that momentum and that education to feed into rezoning their city, creating zoning changes that allow more housing types to be built in more exclusive neighborhoods and to address the housing affordability crisis they're in and to desegregate their neighborhoods. So that's just one example of sort of using the history to Mm -hmm. then lead into the advocacy and creating change. In the future, when we have a dark day, I'm going to end it up by spontaneously calling Richard Rothstein and Leah Rothstein so that they can bring a little hope. They can bring some light uh, to the end of the tunnel. These are two wonderful books. I strongly urge you to pick them up, The Color of Law and Just Action. Uh, Thank you both for being here and uh, giving us a little bit of look into all this lengthy investigation and research you've done for these. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time. We are going to take a break now, and we're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. Uh, from time to time, we uh, we talk to people on the other side of the aisle. Yes, we are a Democratic station. We are a liberal uh, station, but it's important for our democracy to have two parties that are both healthy and functional. And as we have talked about a lot here on this radio station, it seems like our friendly uh, opponents in the Republican Party have lost their way. I know there are still a lot of good people who consider themselves Republicans. I read a lot of the newsletters that a lot of them are are writing as uh, as they talk about how they can break their party out of the spell that seems to have been woven um, by by Donald Trump. Uh, one of those people here in Illinois who seems to want to reclaim the Republican Party we once knew is Pat Brady, who is the former Illinois Republican chairman. And, um, you know, he has written publicly and talked publicly about the the effect that Donald Trump has on the ballot here in Illinois and, frankly, across the country. Pat joins us now to talk about this. Pat, thank you very much for joining us. I I know we are not conservative radio, but I think that there is an important conversation that we can have. And I'm sure there's a Venn diagram of me and you, and we're going to find that spot in the middle <laughs> to talk about today. Oh, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's the way it's supposed to work. Uh, and the little level set, Joan, the Republicans not the conservative party anymore. It's a party of Trump, and Trump's not a conservative. Trump, Trump is what he is. I mean, he, he's not a conservative. He's not a Reagan conservative. He's not a McCain conservative. He's just a populist who's got a whole group of people convinced that he's a strong leader and a great businessman, and he's neither of those. And they've hijacked the party, as you said in the intro. 
I've talked repeatedly on this show about the planks of the beliefs that used to be core to being a conservative or a Republican, you know, in this country 20 or 30 years ago. And it seems that pretty much all of them have been abandoned. What are the planks? What are the core values and beliefs that you would like to see reconstituted in the Republican Party? First and foremost, and the Democrats have the same plank, that their leadership should be decent human beings. We're going to have, likely, and I'm a Nikki Haley fan, we might have the nominee of the Republican Party again be an adjudicated sexual predator who uh, orchestrated the over, tried to orchestrate the over, uh, overthrowing the, the, the 2020 election, among many, many other things. Uh, 91 criminal charges. All the things he's done, I mean, just the decency plank, but but even more specifically, you know, we don't coddle dictators. We don't praise the Communist Party of China. Uh, They're our enemies. Communism's bad. Democrats and Republicans can all agree on that. We don't coddle dictators. We just do everything differently. We don't spend $8 trillion in a four-year term more than we took in. I mean, there's many planks he doesn't adhere to, but he's, he's not, and I said this, Joan, I said this eight years ago. This guy is not a conservative. He's not a Republican. He's a populist, and he's a carnival barker. How was he able to have such an impact? Some people describe him as basically having taken over the current Republican Party. Well, he, to a great extent, he, he has. But I think what he did is, and both parties need to pay attention to this, he appealed to a group of people legitimately that felt that they had been left out of the system. And I I don't condemn people for uh, following what he said if you take him at his word, which he never really tells the truth. But he did appeal to a group of a lot of them are disaffected uh, Democrats, working class people that felt like they've been left out of the system. And they have. And those are the people he kind of cobbled together to make his, you know, 36 percent that follow whatever he does. But I give him credit for that. He was effective at doing that. You've made reference, as has Jim Durkin, to the negative effect he has on down-ballot races. And yet, and yet it still seems that there are so many Republicans who are afraid to publicly oppose him for fear that he'll find somebody more to his liking to run against them in a, in a primary. If if you can see that he has a negative effect on a lot of races, and I can see that, why does not the the party structure see that and react to that? Wouldn't that be reason enough to get rid of him? Yeah, you would think, but you kind of got to break this down into different buckets. So let's just talk about Illinois and what my friend Jim Durkin was talking about. So there's 12.5 million people in this state, 9.5 of them live, you know, you can see the Sears through the uh, Wills Tower. I still call it Sears Tower. Sorry, Joan. That's okay. I do, too. <laughs> but think about it. And within that eye shot, Trump is hated. Not hated. I walked precincts in um, 18 for Peter Roskam and Randy Hulker, and, and, and suburban voters and city voters can't stand him. But if you go to, if you're familiar with Illinois, go south of I-64, maybe even south of Bloomington, he's wildly popular. It's like we have Alabama at the bottom part of the state and Illinois at the top. The point being, though, 9.5 million of the 12 million people, 12.5, 
live in the Chicago area. Why are we selling out and appealing, trying to appease Trump when all our voters are north of I-80? Nationally, you're exactly right. The Republicans in the House of Representatives that have all gotten behind this guy should be ashamed of themselves. They all know what happened, and they'll tell you when they're not speaking publicly that none of them can stand Trump and they get it. But they don't do anything about it. Now, the Republican National Committee, another bucket, that Ronna McDaniel has been an embarrassment. She just does whatever Trump says. And I don't know if you saw it today. Trump's talking about if he wins, he's going to get rid of her. So anybody that aligns with Trump ultimately uh, you know, ends up on the cutting room floor. He, he, he's, it's all about Trump. I, I know. I was reading about that and how, you know, I mean, she has twisted herself and the Republican Party into a pretzel to try to appease him. Some people I, I read, you know, the last debate uh, that I think the one that was on News Nation and people were like, why on earth would there be an important Republican presidential debate on uh, admittedly a national network, but one that's n- nobody's watching. I mean, they have a handful of viewers compared to pretty much anybody else. And there was speculation that she did that as a sop to Trump. Like, OK, well, you know, we know you're going to be the nominee and we don't want these other people to make inroads. So we're going to do this debate, but we're going to do it on a network that nobody's watching. So basically, we're just going to kind of bury it. And we're doing that for you, um, which I thought was a explanation that made a lot of sense. I mean, on a good, I think the best ratings month News Nation has ever had, they've had like 67,000 people watching, which, you know, would get you fired if you did a local news show, um, you know, on Channel 7 or Channel 5, that kind of an audience. I don't understand. I don't understand. Um, I do. I did read what you said, that he's become upset with Rana uh, because she's just not loyal enough. But that seems to be so hard to be loyal enough You know, it's like the goalposts keep moving. And you said the first thing you'd like to see coming back is people being decent human beings. And it's this whole desire, like now that we're watching the vice presidential sweepstakes, it's like who can abase themselves the most um, to to Donald Trump? You know, J.D. Vance saying that the president wouldn't have to follow any Supreme Court ruling. You know, Elise Stefanik, who, according to Adam Kinzinger, who was in Congress with her, used to be a normal human being before she got on the Trump train. She she was the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. I was a co-host of a fundraiser for her after she won. She ran as a moderate Republican in in a moderate district. She's... She's an, she just embarrassed herself. What happened, Pat? What happened? How does that, how does, like, I see Kirsten Cinema, who was originally representing the Green Party and then, you know, became um, Joe Manchin in high heels. I don't understand. To explain to me why a politician changes like that. Is it all about donors? Is it all about getting reelected? Well, you know, the, the Kirsten Sinema example, now this might upset you or your voters, I'm not trying to, or your listeners, but the, the reality is, is the Democratic Party, less obnoxiously than Trump has done it for certain, but the Democratic Party has gone pretty far left, too. Kirsten Sinema 
uh, it's just pretty much stayed true to what she was before. So I give her credit for doing that. Both parties have a problem in the extremes because that's not where you win elections and that's not where you get legislation done. But she's just an example, I think, of somebody the party went too far left for her. And I think if you, you know, you've been around Chicago a long time, Joe, and a lot of the Democrats that we see maybe in city council or some other places aren't the Democrats uh, that we knew in the 90s and the 80s with, with Mayor Daley or other Democrats that were in leadership roles. So it's a little well, bit that may on be the case, sides. but for Kirsten Cinema, I mean, she was put into office. Her, her she was a, a Green Party. She was, she was pretty far left on her own. You know, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm I don't sure think the party. I, I, I don't think the party um, moved too far left for her. I think yeah, that, I think, that you know, she rethought her positions. And I'm not sure if I agree with that, but I tell you what, it's interesting. The guy that's running as a Democrat, Ruben Gallegos, is from here uh, originally. Rick Pearson did a great article on him in the Tribune, very interesting. You know, be that it may, we, we, we can disagree on that or agree to disagree, but both, both the parties have this problem. But I think that, that, that and this is a discussion I have with my Republican friends that get mad at me for saying I'm going to vote for Joe Biden again, as I did, you know, in 20, that, you know, I may not agree with Biden on all his policies, and I don't. But you know what? He won't do anything extra constitutional. He won't try to overthrow the election. He won't coddle dictators. He won't do anything beyond the, the legislative and executive powers yet. Trump is a threat to democracy. He said what he's going to do, and you got to believe him. He will not have any guardrails on him in a second term, and everybody's got to get up and vote and make sure he doesn't win. What would happen, Pat, if you wanted to be chairman of the Illinois Republican Party again? Would there be enough um, non-super far-right people to put you uh, in that position? Or is it like the Adam Kinzinger effect? You, you speak the truth and therefore you're shunted aside. Well, you know, uh, you remember, you may not remember, I was removed... I don't know, what, 11 years, 10 years ago now, or 11 years almost, because I, I supported marriage equality, which to me is the conservative position. We're supposed to be the party that doesn't want to get involved in your life. So that's why I got tossed out. I don't think, I don't think Ronald Reagan could come from the grave, and it's his birthday tomorrow, and, and run and win in the Republican Party. Now, Trump has taken it over. I'm hoping that he'll get beaten so badly in, in the fall that, you know, people get over it. But he's tapped into something that um, there's a lot of energy behind it. I have good friends that are smart people that still support him. I don't understand it. But, um, you know, again, I voted for Joe Biden, but the Democrats with Joe Biden, he's very unpopular, unfairly, I think, because he's done a lot of good things, particularly in foreign policy. And our economy is booming again, but he's not getting credit for it. But, you know, the Republicans are going to probably ride the Trump horse in. But don't, don't count out Nikki Haley. Joan, I'm going there in a couple of weeks to walk for her. I'm hoping she can pull some miracle. Well, that's kind of feels like what it would take. Um, I think that, you know, as long as I, you know, I was talking about strategy and as I certainly as long as she's got the money, I think she's going to stay in the race. But, you know, unless Donald Trump keels over, I, I mean, even she's not even going to win her home state. I, I, I hope she stays in the race. Um, but. Uh, how do you think she, you know what, we need to take a break. And then I want Pat Brady, the former Illinois GOP chairman, to tell me the path to victory that he sees for Nikki Haley. We'll be right back after this. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Pat Brady joins me. He is the former uh, chairman of the Illinois Republican Party, and he is a big supporter of Nikki Haley and is going to be campaigning for her and is now going to explain to us, other than Donald Trump keeling over from from a stroke, how he sees Nikki Haley taking this nomination. (laughs) Pat? You know, uh, the way she's talking about it, she says she's built momentum at each in Iowa, Nebraska. She's done better in each state. And if she can get to 45, 46 percent in South Carolina, that's momentum. And the reality is she's raising more money than Trump. She's raising more grassroots money than Trump right now. And if she can go to um, the next uh, Super Tuesday, which is the next event in March, and, and, and do well there, there she can you know, keep this thing going. So I think there is a path. And I think Trump's had a rough couple of weeks in, in the court of law. Um, and I think it's starting to sink in now that you know, this guy's probably going to be a convicted felon uh, by the end of the summer. So I think people might be looking for a different candidate. She's still, she's still got an uphill climb, but stranger things have happened in politics. Nobody thought that there was ever going to be a president, Donald Trump, including me. Yeah, really? Uh, at the beginning of my show today, I was talking to Kate Martell, who covers national politics for The Hill. And uh, she's been on the campaign trail with Nikki. And she said in the last few weeks, in her opinion, Nikki Haley has, quote, found her groove. Um, I saw CNN was reporting today that uh, she's apparently decided to go after Trump and Biden simultaneously uh, by airing. I believe her ad is called Grumpy Old Men. <laughs> but, yeah, that, you know, uh, she she. Uh, she makes it the point often that seven in ten voters in America don't want either of these guys. Uh, they want something new, and I think that's what she represents, and therein lies her opportunity. We did an event for her in June. She was in town and got a chance to spend a lot of time with her. She's just so nice, so accomplished, so smart, so level-headed, kind of the, the non-chaos candidate that a lot of people want, I think. I do believe from an Illinois perspective, and I said this months ago, if she's on top of the ticket, we're going to win some Republican seats that people didn't think we could win. I mean, it couldn't get any worse, but we've lost suburban women and young people uh, horribly, and I think we can win some of those back with a younger, more appealing candidate like Nikki Haley. I mean, do you really, can you imagine anybody north of I-80 thinking that Trump's a good candidate? There's just not many people that do. I mean, he pulls horribly up here. Do you think if Nikki Haley continues to make inroads against Trump that some of the um, very vocal Republicans, you know, I'm thinking people who are in Congress or in the Senate, might um, support her openly? I mean, everyone has seemed to be very much afraid of going on the record against Donald Trump. You know, they're kind of those tepid endorsements, right? You don't see anybody, the majority of the members in Congress, blowing those things out and going on Fox and whatever and talking about, oh, I'm with Trump. The ones you hear are the Matt Gateses and the Marjorie Taylor Greene and that crew of goofballs, J.D. Vance. I mean, I don't know if you watched him over the weekend. He couldn't yeah. have been worse. He's a, you know what? The thing is, it's scary about J.D. Vance. Is he smart? I don't think Trump's particularly smart. J.D. Vance is smart. He's smart enough to know what he's saying is complete nonsense. But, man, he was speeding out over the weekend. I go, that is a guy that should never 
be near, anywhere near the executive branch of government. But Don't you think is, he was auditioning to try to get a slot as of Trump's VP? Oh, yeah. But, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to sit anybody down that's interviewing for that job and go, you know, it never ends well for you, but <laughs> the last one... <laughs> Why does nobody see that? And and he turns know. on everybody. He's turning on Ronna McDaniels. He's turning on Alina Haba. Now it's her fault that, you know, he got that judgment, uh, the second judgment against E. Jean Carroll. Um, why does nobody see that it never ends well? Well, um, I think the, what do they call it, Potomac fever of... Uh the, you know, the allure of power and, and, and people fall for it. But it, you know, how'd you like to be Mike Pence? He was going to let Mike Pence get hung. Literally. Yeah. Get hung. You know, everybody has got to read the January, the January 6th indictment and what there's a new frontline special out. It came out Friday, I think, on January 6th and what Trump did. And it will motivate you to tell all your friends, if you don't tell them not to vote, they've got to come out and vote for anybody but Trump. Because it is scary what this guy is capable of. You said that you knew people, smart people, who were still supporting him. What reasons have they given you for that? Well, I think um, on the political end of it, it's just like I don't want the headache to have Trump come after me and and, and I have a primary. I, I, I get that. I don't respect that, but I get it. I mean, I, I respect more my friend Adam Kinzinger uh, for doing what he did. But I think there are people that truly believe when you get the commander in chief, the president that lies to you about everything, you, you just don't expect it to all be a lie. And every just about everything out of his mouth is a lie uh, uh, during his administration and after. I don't know if you saw it the other day. He said the stock market has picked up because the market's figured out he's going to be president again. Yeah. Maybe he believes that. But he, he convinced a whole group of, of smart people that don't you know, live and breathe this stuff like you and I do. Uh, that don't research the facts like you and I do because we're in positions where we have to, uh, you know, they believe it. They believe the Justice Department's been weaponized. Joan, I used to work at the Justice Department, and I had some pretty high-profile cases. I guarantee you there's no way you can pull off a conspiracy involving agents, and in this case, agents that probably voted for for, uh, for Trump, uh, that would go after him. It just doesn't make sense, but the long answer to your question is uh, people believe his, his lies, and they believe this impression he's created that everything was better when he was president. It, it truly wasn't, but uh, that's why the smart people, some smart people are fall for it. Wow. Pat, thank you so much for uh, joining us here, and I hope from time to time you'll come back. Uh, if for no other reason, to bring us Nikki Haley updates, okay? Anytime. It's always fun to talk to the opposition, Johnny. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you know what? I, I hope a day comes when we're more opposed than we are now. <laughs> you know what? We're, uh, yeah, that'll be fun. But I, we both care about the country. And yes. I think a lot of people do. And I think I have a lot of faith that we'll get this right. Well, I appreciate you joining us and, and talking to us about this. I think a healthy Republican Party is just vital to this country. Pat Brady is the former Illinois GOP chairman. That's going to do it for me today. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Stay safe, my friends, and have a great evening. Good night.